0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn to the Scriptures and look at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at the judgment of Hillel Ben-Shakar. And you think, who in the world is Hillel ben Shakar? That is Satan's real name. Hillel ben Shakar. You know, it's mistranslated in your King James version as Lucifer. And that's not really how it should be translated. Hillel is light bearer. Ben is sun and Shakar is of dawn or morning. So light bearer, son of the dawn, son of the morning. And that is Satan's real name. And now you're going to now move into Genesis chapter 3, and you're going to see the cursing and the punishment that's going to be issued from God, from Yahweh, to Hillel ben Shekar and what he did. Now, I will make a special note here. The previous sermons, I have focused a lot on application, about being responsible and whatnot, and there's a heavy-duty amount of application in those other sermons because of the subject nature. This subject nature, you're going to have to go deep with me on theology because this starts getting pretty deep in understanding the implications of the cursing of Hillel Ben-Shakar, Satan or the devil as he's called, to understand the ramifications because to understand Genesis 3 really is to understand the rest of the drama that plays itself out in Scriptures all the way to the book of Revelation. When you understand this, you understand all the other things that happen to Satan and what he's doing and the authority that's involved and how our interactions are with the spirit world of demons and Satan. So hang with me as best you can. I will try to put it on the bottom shelf as much as I can, but sometimes the text itself is getting really deep pretty quick. I don't want to gloss over this because it has huge implications theologically for us. So let's start in there and start in verse 14, and we're only going to do two verses, okay? Verse 14 says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, so this is after Adam and Eve have partaken of the fruit, they've been tempted, they've fallen, so God shows up, obviously, and now the cursing then is going to begin of the serpent. So he says to the serpent, now here's what I want to break out for you. The first statement is to the first sinner, but what you're going to see is a twofold application it's going to be directed to the serpent itself, but it's also going to be directed to Satan. So first to the Nakash, the serpent, and then to Khalel ben Shakar. So it's directed in two ways. Now, what people don't realize when they study the scriptures is that there can be a literal meaning. One meaning is always one meaning of the text, but can have multiple applications. So in our Jewish interpretation, this is called paradis. There's four ways of Jewish interpretation. There's the Peshat, and then there's the Sod, and then there's the Ramez, and then what we're seeing right now is called the Drash. And the Drash is a one-meaning, literal application, but can apply several times. So what you're seeing is what's called a Drash. So God will say something to the Nakash, but he's saying it not only to the Nakash, the serpent, but he's also saying it, to Halel ben Shikar. So it has two applications for both creatures. When we read this, you have to know he's speaking to both. It's a drosh, literal plus two applications. Okay, so again, we're looking at Halel ben Shakar, who is a cherub. He's the highest cherub. We talked about this early on in Genesis. And then you're also looking at the nakash as well being cursed. And the nakash we think might have been bipedal or quadrupedal. We don't know but it's going to be directed in two ways. Both will make sense when we parse it out. So, let's go back to the text. It says, because you have done this. Now, he's directing it to the Nakash. Because you have done this, notice he's directing it to the Nakash and to Helo Ben-Shakar. So, they're both guilty. Now, you think, how is the Nakash, the serpent, guilty for this? Because of this, first of all, we don't know the intellect or the understanding of the Nakash because apparently the Nakash had the ability to speak. That's who Satan used. It was the highest of the animal kingdom. It was to be a helpmate to Adam and Eve, and it had the ability to speak. So therefore, it must have some type of intelligence. Hence, most commentators will read this and say, well, this animal seems to be somewhat morally responsible because God is cursing the Nakash. And God would not curse something that's not morally responsible. And so what commentators have said is it seems to be that the Nakash is somewhat accountable for allowing itself to be possessed by Halel ben Shakar. And so it is cursed as the animal itself. Again, we see this sometimes, it, we'll see this in Genesis 9.5, Exodus 21, that if an animal attacks a human and does something wrong to a human, they're under the death penalty. They are cursed by God if an animal attacks a human. So it's, it's still in line with that. This animal did something very terrible to human beings. So it bears the responsibility. But the other responsibility, as you understand, is Satan himself. It is directed to him as well. And what did he do? It's not only that he tempted Adam and Eve to sin and introduced the death principle that Satan was aware Satan's game is to usurp Adam and Eve. Remember, when we talked about the fall of Satan, he, had, he was the original authority over the original earth that was a gem-like earth, and there was a gem-like Garden of Eden is where God had his counsel. And now God has established a new earth, recreated out of that fallen earth from Satan's fall, created a new Garden of Eden where he will have his divine counsel, With human beings. It is a, uh, the language in Genesis is no doubt a all tabernacle temple language. It is a garden temple. That being said, Satan's game was this. He understood that Adam had dominion. He wanted it. The way to have Adam lose his dominion is to get him to sin so that the death principle will work in his life and he will be eliminated by death. Hence, allowing Satan then to usurp and take the authority, take the dominion away from Adam, our king, our former king, and he did so. That was the game. He then wrestled and usurped through the temptation and the fall of Adam and took dominion, and that then becomes what we call the God of this world, according to the apostle Paul, or what Jesus said, the ruler of this world. Why does he call that? Why in the temptation of our Lord did Satan say, these are my kingdoms and I can give it to whoever I want to? Because Satan illegally usurped Adam's authority and took dominions over the kingdoms of this world. We know when Jesus comes back, he has now the authority to take the kingdoms back because he said it, all authority has been given unto me. So Jesus has that authority now, and he will exercise that authority at the second coming when he becomes the ruler of all kingdoms and nations. But right now, the usurper illegally has taken Adam's authority. And because of that, since then, he has been the ruler of this world or the world system. So that's what he did. And remember this. Now, this is a key point. In understanding Adam and our relationship to what happened here in in this transaction, because you have done this, because you have usurped Adam and Eve, Satan is unbeliever's master, and they are not aware of it. Because he has taken that authority, when you're an unbeliever, you automatically submit to the kingdom of darkness, whether you know it or not. There's no middle ground. That's why Paul will say in Colossians and other passages, that we have moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun that he loves or the kingdom of light. You were, you and I were once in the kingdom of darkness, whether you knew it or not. And your master was Satan. And that's who rules the unbelieving world is Satan. He has that authority. Even though, even though it's usurped, he does have that. And remember what the scriptures say. Whoever you obey, is your master. Whatever you obey is your master. People don't realize it, but when they obey sin, they're obeying their master who created the sin and made us fall. They're worshiping Satan, and they don't realize it. That's where you and I were. So there's a lot of implications here. Now you get into you are cursed. You are cursed. The term cursed in Hebrew is Allah, A-L-A, Allah. And that term in Hebrew is only a term that God can use. No man can use that term. It only comes from God. Now you hear people in witchcraft and Wicca and Satanism that try to curse people. That's not the same. When you see it in this Hebrew, it is a curse that only God can do because he only has the power to enact the curse. Another way of thinking about a curse is punishment or a consequence. But it is a cursing that only God can issue. Notice... He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to give you a second chance, Nakash and and Halel Ben-Shakar. Hey, uh, there's, you know, why is there no grace and mercy? Why is there no questioning? Remember how he inquires to Adam and Eve and he questions, where are you? He's trying to elicit a confession from Adam and Eve. Remember that? How come he doesn't start, hey, what did you do? It's instant curse to him, to uh, Halel Ben-Shakar. Why? Because Satan has passed the point of his probationary period. All the angels had a probationary period to make their decision of whether they were going to follow Hillel ben Shakar, and a third of them did, and whether they were going to follow God. Once they made that decision, they are confirmed in that decision, and they're not coming back. They epitomize. Satan epitomizes evil, wickedness, and so does his demons. So there is no grace or mercy given to them because they're gone. They're not coming back. They don't experience a questioning or trying to elicit confession. It is just instant cursing at that point in time because they have passed that probationary period. Now, as human beings, we're in that probationary period now. We have a decision to make in our 70-something years or 80 years to make a decision for Christ, and that's our probationary period. Once you make that decision and you go into eternity, you are sealed forever in that decision, just as the same as those who go to hell as well. So then we go into the aspects of the cursing. You're going to see a double entendre. Again, one meaning, double applications to the Nakash, but also to Satan. He says, you're cursed, and then he says, more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, On your belly you shall go. Let's talk about the Nakash first and the implications to the Nakash. Now, in the Nakash, in the picture of it, again, we don't know if he's bipedal or quadrupedal, but he was upright. We know he's upright, and that is a spiritual indication of his position. He was upright. He could speak upright with Adam and Eve face to face. And this animal is then going to be brought low to his belly. Now, whether he had arms and legs, we don't know, but we know he's upright. But he's instantly going to hit the deck. If he had legs, he's lost them. God transformed him then to be what we know now commonly called a serpent or a snake. And that being the case, what does this mean? It is a physical reminder of the Nakash and what he did. And notice he's put below any animal, all beasts of the field, to crawl in his belly under man, under all the animals. He is a physical reminder. When you see a serpent, it is a physical reminder of the animal that took us down. Notice he's on the belly, and that's how he'll travel. And what you'll see is a reference to dust, that he will travel and be on the dust and eat dust. It is a reference to what we're made out of. You and I are made out of dust. You and I are made out of clay. And so dust is a reference to how we're made. He will travel on the very material that we're made of because he's the one that brought us down. And so it's all connected in the thematic understanding of dust and how humans are created. So it's always related to that. So he's in the lowest position, but then let's go to Khalil bin Shakar, Satan, or the devil. Again, more than any all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go. So in referring to him, it's metaphorical, it's spiritual. To the Nakash, it's physical. To Satan, it's spiritual or metaphorical. Satan wanted to be the highest. Remember the five I wills? I will ascend on high. I will sit on basically God's throne. He wanted to be God. He rose up in his pride. Now Satan is brought low to the ground that you you will be under every beast of the field on your belly, you shall go. What does that mean spiritually to Satan? Well, we get a hint of this in Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are about the fall of Satan. But notice what Ezekiel says in this passage. I cast you to the ground, talking to this covering cherub. Why is it reference to the ground? It's metaphorical. It's spiritual. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. All who knew you are among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. What does that mean? The idea is this. You wanted to be the most high. I'm going to make you the most low. Okay. What is this idea below every cattle, beast of the field on your belly you shall go? It's a reference to the arets, the land. What do you mean? Well, okay, You understand that the Nakash is put on the ground, but metaphorically, Satan is put on the ground. He's connected to the Arets. This is interesting. The Arets in other texts sometimes refer to Sheol or the place of the dead. And so there's a meaning here, a spiritual meaning, that you wanted to be up high where God is, the third heaven. I'm going to make you Lord of Sheol, Lord of the dead. All the creatures will be above you. You wanted to be above all the creatures. I'm putting you below all the creatures, even the animals, and your place is on the ground below them, which is a reference to the underworld. Hence, have you ever heard a term that, uh, the, the, you know, are these people that try to make cartoons where Satan is ruling hell or something like that? That's a derivative of this understanding. It's messed up because people are not thinking the right way. But it's a term that's been given to him that he now controls the domain of the dead. Not that he's there with a pitchfork and, and you know, torturing people. That's not the, the idea. The idea is he is in such a low position of all creatures, we literally could call him Lord of the Dead. Lord of the flies, Lord of, of nothing, Lord of, of where death rots and everything else. Sheol is connected to him. In fact, we know that he will be in Sheol for a thousand years when Messiah or the angel that Messiah sends puts him there for a thousand years into the Abuso in the center of the earth during the millennial reign of Christ. He is associated to Sheol now. That's where the metaphor is coming from. And this is why when you see Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they'll say, you've been brought low, you've been brought down to the ground you will go, or arets in Hebrew, which were, again, a reference to the place of the damned. But again, let's talk about some more aspects of this. And he goes, and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. Okay, to the nakash, the snake, the serpent that now hits the ground, uh, he literally, I mean, people misinterpret this. They think, well, that's crazy. Snakes don't eat dust. No, no, no. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying that its prey will be consumed directly off the ground. And that's, you know that about snakes. Their prey, if you ever watch them eat in the wild, will always eat on the ground. And the idea is that the dust is associated to their eating. Again, Why did God do this? A perpetual, perennial reminder of the crime that the Nakash did. So every time you see a snake on the ground eating its prey is a reminder of what it did to you and I. You're going to eat the dust. But what about to Halel Ben-Shakar, to Satan? Well, this saying, you shall eat the dust all the days of your life, is a Hebraic saying. It's a Hebraic idiom. It's the way they talked in the Middle East. And the idea here behind it, it's a figure of speech that means when you eat dust, it means that you're cursed, judged, humiliated, defeated, because when you, you when you destroyed an enemy, you typically would put him on the ground and stand on his neck with his face in the dirt. That's how you show that you had defeated your enemy. They typically did this to a king that they had taken over. It's a very Middle Eastern way of talking. You put them on the ground, stomp on their neck, and make them put their face in the dirt. Now, another thing, too, another Hebraic understanding is when you shake the dust off your feet. You've heard that phrase before? Or if you show the bottom of your sandal to somebody is another insult So the idea, it's connected to dust. It's all connected to judgment, punishment. Okay, what does it mean then? It says you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Here's the deal. To Satan, his entire existence from that point on will be an existence of frustration and defeat even when he's in the lake of fire. He will always be frustrated. And notice he shall eat dust. Okay, he's eating dust. What are we made out of? Dust. Who's going to serve him up his lunch? Messiah. Messiah is not only God, but he is what? Man, who is made out of dust. His doom will come from the dust, because Messiah is the God-man made out of the same material, you and I, but yet he is God, too. But that Messiah who's made out of dust will serve up his lunch to him. He will be defeated by Jesus, the Messiah, made just like us, his brethren. Wow. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, why is that? Because Satan already hates her and he hates Adam and he hates you and I. But God instills a hostility into Eve and Adam. Towards not the Nakash, but to Satan himself. Why? There's some implications here. Let's start with the physical implications. God puts enmity. What what does enmity mean in Hebrew? It's a kind of hostility. You would see it in other Hebraic texts of hostility between nations, a level of animosity that actually results in murder, or life and death struggle between combatants. That's where the term enmity comes from. And God's going to put enmity in human beings towards satan to Halel ben Shachar. now you see this physically on one level there is a universal on the nakash of the serpent there is a universal fear of snakes people hate them no matter what culture you're in no matter what time period you're in when you see a snake the the normal reaction is to whoa they get hostile to it and that should be our natural reaction. Now, obviously, people, they, they go past those natural phobias, and then you see snake handlers and people that have pushed past it. But that's the rarity. Through all cultures, a hatred for serpents is universal. There's a natural response to it. That natural response to any other animal other than the serpent has been put in humans by God. Why? As a reminder of the bigger picture. Your fear of a serpent, it makes you stand back and, whoa, let's kill that thing, right? That's a normal reaction. Get a shovel. That normal reaction is to signal to you saying, yeah, but you have a bigger enemy that's called the serpent, and your reaction to him better be the same. What do you mean? Obviously, you see a snake like that, it's like, whoa. When you see Satan, Halal bin Shakar, or his demonic realm that follows him, you should have a natural hostility towards it just like you do a snake and you're getting ready to get a shovel and kill a snake, you should in your spirit have a natural bent towards hostility towards Satan because God said, I put it in you. Now, I want you to think about this. When people start snake handling and they push past their fear of snakes, then they have no problems and they'll have a pet snake at home and they'll feed them mice and, and, they oh, it's a big buddy and this python's moving through the house and sometimes they lose the python and, I don't care, let them roam around. And they get real familiar with that python, don't they? Until he squeezes their cat to death. And then it's another ball game. So people get used to snakes and stuff. I and mean, they push past their fears. The same is true spiritually. Your natural reaction to demonic realm, satanic, should be, whoa! But what happens when someone pushes past that enmity and that hostility? They get very familiar with the demonic realm. They get very familiar with Satan. In fact, you even have some people who are Satanists right? Who actually worship him. They push past that natural fear. Our natural reaction when we see evil, we see wickedness should be, whoa, whoa. But if it's not, you're being conditioned to love a snake. And that's what a lot of Christians, even today, have been conditioned by. They don't react the right way to when they see evil or when they see wickedness. They have a cozying up to that guy. Uh, well, I'm familiar with him, and, you know, you know, we get along quite well in the hell that I've created in my life. Be careful, because you're going against what God put in you should be a hostility towards Satan. Now, let me add this, and this is where we start going down deep. So hang with me, man. Why did he have to put hostility in humans towards the demonic realm or even Satan himself? Why? Well, a couple things. To protect women from what is about to occur later on in Genesis 6, that's why. Did you notice that in the Garden of Eden, Eve has no problem conversing with Halel ben Shakar? She thinks he's a buddy of hers. He's going to do well for her, and he's going to make her life better, right? He's using Nakash to do it. She has no natural reaction. She thinks he's for her. God doesn't ever want that happening again because why did Satan go after the woman? Because a woman can do one thing that a man can't do. She can reproduce. Satan wanted the ability to reproduce. All angels are male. There are no female angels. Even though at Christmas time you see female angels and all this other stuff, that's wrong. They're all males, male-oriented. Satan wants the ability to capture the reproduction ability that Eve has been given. And you will see the outbreak in Genesis 6 of what happens when the hostility is pushed through and women are taken in marriage by fallen angels and produce Nephilim, produce half breeds uh, and hybrids and different things of that nature, and, and monsters and giants that get produced. Hey, I know this is a Sunday morning, but you need to know this. So the first thing is, to protect women from them, he puts a natural hostility towards them, towards the demonic realm and Satan. Satan then will have to come in a disguise to people. He can't come in his full manifestation. You can't see him as he is because your natural affinity will be like to a snake. So he has to come as what Paul called an angel of light. I'm here to help you, buddy. I'm just watching your back, buddy. And he's going to do it through people in your life. A false teacher, a book, podcast. He's coming to you that way. He's never going to do a frontal attack on you. He can't because the natural hostility that God put in you will make you react. So he has to go through the back door. That's how he works. This has forced him to take on disguises. This has forced him to take on a false morality or whatever you see happening in our culture today that people think they're being moral when they're actually doing evil, like a woman's right to her body. What it's really doing is allowing Satan to murder babies in the womb. He doesn't want you to see the murdering, the front door. He wants to say, back door, I'm for women's rights. Angel of light. You see what I'm saying? He can't funnily attack us. He has to now go behind in disguise. Okay, to seize the reproduction rights of women, you will see this happen in Genesis 6. Why does he want this? Because he is going to be told in this text that his doom is going to come from a woman, that she will have a seed, and that seed that comes from the woman is going to destroy him. So his objective is to get control of reproduction so that the anointed one cannot come to destroy him. So the anointed one has to be a descendant of Adam and Eve, fully human. So if I can corrupt the genetics and make them not fully human, then the the, the anointed one cannot come to destroy me. That's how the game is going to get played out in Genesis 6. But that's why God instantly right now puts in the internal hostility towards the demonic realm in human beings. I know that's probably more than what you wanted to know, but this is how the game is starting to be played now. It has huge implications. And notice there, there's a second enmity. Go back to the text. There's, a, there's one hostility here between women and Satan, and human beings in general towards Satan and the demonic realm. But then there's a second hostility, a second enmity between your seed and and her seed, a natural hostility that wasn't there before, but now will get itself played out throughout the biblical record all the way to the book of Revelation. Well, what do you mean? Again, look at this from a drosh standpoint from the Hebraic understanding. There's one meaning, but two applications, okay? The term seed in both cases can be translated singular and plural, there could be one seed, but then there could be multiple seeds, right? In the application to plurality, let's start there. Between your seed, Satan's seed, plural, and her seed, plural. Who could that be referring to? Well, simply, the, the co- corporate component is Satan's seed is all unbelievers. All unbelievers are the seed of Satan. Jesus told the Pharisees, your father's the devil. Any unbeliever who thinks they're on neutral ground is crazy. Their father is the devil, and they don't know it. Before you were saved, your father was the devil. You are in his domain under his authority, whether you knew it or not. But then when you get saved, you then transfer over to authorities. You come from Satan's authority, and you transfer to the Messiah's authority, and under the Messiah, didn't you become the seed of Abraham or whatnot? You, you, not, not literally biological, but spiritual in this sense that you become a child under the Messiah, a child of God, and you're his property under his authority. And that is the seed of the woman, plural. All believers, all true believers then come under the Messiah. But let's go singular now. If you go back to singular, the seed of the woman, obviously is a reference to the Messiah. You can't miss that. And most commentators will get this right. So hold on with that. It is singular, refers to the Messiah, no doubt about it. It is a hint of the virgin birth. How so? Seed of a woman is incongruent to normal Hebraic talking. In Hebraic talking, it's the man who has the seed. Now, it's translated in Greek, in the Septuagint, or even in the New Testament, seed will be translated, translated sperma, which refers to the man's sperm. He controls the seed. He passes on the seed through women. But it's the man who has the seed. Always, always, always. But in this text, Moses wants you to know something. He says the anointed one is coming, but he's not a seed from a man. He's a seed from a woman. It was a hint at the virgin birth, which then gets flushed out by Isaiah chapter 7 later on, centuries later, that Messiah is going to be virgin born. He's not going to human have a human dad because his heavenly father is his father. He's going to be born of a virgin. And that's the hint of that right there in Genesis chapter 3 right there. That being the case, that seed will have a natural hostility towards Satan and his demonic realm. Okay? And I think everyone gets that one. But the next one is what people don't get. I have looked at commentary after commentary after commentary, and just a handful will mention this. Most commentators will stay on the plural aspect of the seat of Satan, but won't go singular. Very few will. Now name them. Mark Hitchcock, Henry Morris, Terry James, Arnold Frutenbaum, and myself will dare to go further and say, Yes, the Messiah is the singular aspect, seed aspect of the woman. And I get that, and you all get that. But who is the singular seed of Satan? I get the plural. All unbelievers, under his domain, under his authority. Take a guess who the singular seed that Satan will produce in opposition to the Messiah. Antichrist. You got it. Not only do you have in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the proto-evangelium of the coming of the Messiah, of the anointed one, you also have a prediction of the coming Antichrist right there in the text. God will produce his seed. Satan will produce his guy. That's why the Antichrist is called the son of perdition. He is the son of Satan. Now, I'll give you some homework. Are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this. Because when you approach this, you're crazy. You're absolutely out of your mind. Wait till I get to Genesis 6, okay, before you say that. There's a biological component in this. Now, you know the biological component in the seed of a woman. What is it? Messiah is fully human, right? He has to be. In order to be an, a kinsman redeemer, the goyel must be a human being. He's God, but he has to be human being in order to redeem us, in order to get our authority back, in order for him to be the second Adam. He ha- there is a biological component to the Messiah. The same is true hermeneutically for the seed of Satan. What are you saying? I don't know. I'll let you figure it out. You mean there's a biological component? Yeah, there's a biological component. And that's all I will say, because I want you to cut your teeth on that a little bit before we get to Genesis chapter 6. It's there. Everyone ignores it. They don't want to look at the implications. They don't want to understand what the text plainly says, especially in Genesis 6, and therefore they just gloss over it. And most commentators in their niceties will simply not talk about it. Because you know what? It freaks people out. We've had people listen to me in Revelation chapter 13 and 17 and get freaked out about it. But there's scholarly work behind it. It's not some lunatic making things up. It's there, and you have to deal with it. We'll get to that in Genesis 6. Let's keep going. So there's this enmity between these two seeds. And notice what it says. He shall bruise your head, talking about the seed of the woman, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is again, uh, show you a picture. This is a classic Hebraic figure of speech. And it's the idea of being in the Middle East, and there's a lot of serpents in the Middle East. And the way you would kill a serpent is you don't step on its tail or in the middle of its body to kill him. You have to step on his head. And this is how they would kill snakes in the Middle East. And, and so there's a Hebraic saying behind this. So, but the idea then, of stepping on this serpent and bruising its head and him bruising the heel is the idea that as the foot is coming down to crush his head, the serpent will jump up to bite the heel of the foot that's about to crush its head. But as you notice, just follow the illustration. As the foot is struck by the viper, what does the foot do? It's still coming down to the ground and then crushes its head so that's the hebraic understanding of what genesis is trying to show that the seed of the woman is going to have a bruised heel as he is striking to destroy the works of halal ben shakar that's how this will happen now again let me go back to the seed singular it's not just satan it's the seed The seed of Satan, who will that be? The Antichrist, eventually. So you have two aspects here, Satan and then the Antichrist at the second coming. First coming, Satan is going to be dealt with at the cross. Second coming, the Antichrist, the seed of Satan, will be dealt with at the second coming. Okay, so let's, let's flush all this out. The bruising of the heel comes at the cross. You're all aware of that. You've probably heard that a hundred times, and that's true. The bruising of Messiah came at the cross, as you know. It was a bruise. It wasn't fatal because He resurrected from the dead, and you all know that. Everyone kind of understands that, but here's what they don't understand: What happened to Satan then at the cross? Because everyone knows the redemption happened for us, but they don't understand how did Messiah start crushing His head at the cross? How did that happen? What happened there? How did Hillel, Ben-Shakar, suffer punishment at the cross? Let's talk about that. First John 3.8 says this, For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay? So we know at the cross more transactions were happening there than just our redemption and just more than paying for our sins. He was actually throwing down the gavel of judgment on Satan. Hebrews adds another insight into this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he became dust like us, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through fear of death were all all their lifetime subject to bondage. Stop right there and just keep that up there. That he might destroy him who had the power of death. Who had it? The devil. What do you mean? How did Satan have the power of death? Let me explain, because this is very complicated. The soul that sins shall die. Adam and Eve were told, when you sin, dying you shall die, right? So there's a punishment associated with sin, that if you sin, you will introduce a death principle into your life, and you will die physically. That's how it works. If Satan can do to you what he did to Adam and Eve, he can get you to die. Does that make sense? So he wields in his domain a sword, and that sword is called the power of death or what's called, shouldn't be translated power, should be translated domain of death. Remember, he became Lord of death. Again, it's funny that the Jews made him the angel of death. Again, that's just rabbinic tradition, but they understood the connotations here. Satan wields in his domain the power of death because he can get people to sin unknowingly or knowingly. And when they sin, they die. His goal is to eliminate human beings off the face of the planet. He doesn't want them here. Okay. He will keep people alive in his domain as long as they do his bidding. If they do his bidding, he'll leave them alone. But if he wants him killed, he can have him killed. And he will kill people. Talk to any Satanist, anyone that's in the occult, and they know full well that Satan has the ability to kill. Look what he did to Job's family. So if you're an unbeliever and you're under that domain of death, the authority of Satan as the God of this world, you're vulnerable to physical death because he can get you to sin and you will die an earlier death, or he can kill you himself if he wants to. Again, he has to get permission, obviously, from the Lord, but he he does have the power to physically kill people. Now, let me make a sidebar to this so you understand. As a believer then, if I come under the authority of the Messiah by believing the Messiah, what Hebrews is saying is he doesn't have the ability to physically hurt me. He can't physically kill me because I am now under the protection of the Messiah, and I am Messiah's property. But there's an exception to this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If a believer gets into protracted sin for a very long time and they go through the three levels of Matthew 18 and the church excommunicates that believer for unrepentant sin, according to the apostle Paul, he says, kick the immoral brother out and put him on the territory of Satan and let Satan destroy his flesh. What did Paul mean by that? There is one exception. If you're taken through Matthew 18 and you're kicked out of a church because you're unrepentant, you will be put back into the realm of the dead where you're under Satan's authority, no longer under the Messiah's authority, and he has permission to kill you. That's how it works. It's the one exception for believers. That being the case, hopefully you never get there, obviously, because we're under the authority of the Messiah. So physically nothing can happen from Satan to us. We're protected. But unbelievers are not protected. And hence, and the release of those who fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. The reason Satan can control the world is the primal fear of dying. So in order to, people subconsciously or consciously are afraid of dying and it will, it will make them act in their own self-interest to preserve their lives. And they will do everything it takes to keep themselves alive. And whatever, and they'll worship whatever God they worship to keep themselves alive because of that fear of death. You and I don't have that fear anymore. We can die because we're going to be resurrected. That fear has been removed. But as Satan had that authority, that authority, according to Colossians, was stripped from him for believers. He does not have the authority to do anything like that to us. That's a big deal. That's a big deal, guys. I can tell you this. I looked into the eyes of a demon-possessed woman that had 12 demons inside of her. And when she manifested the demons, I looked into her eyes and I was looking into a pit of darkness that went a 1,000 yards. And I'm going to tell you this, the hatred that I saw from those creatures inside of her, they would have shredded me at an instant had I not had the protection of the Messiah. They knew I was off limits to them, but boy, I could tell they hated me. And boy, I could tell they wanted to kill me. They literally would have shredded me. And it's because of that protection you and I have. So that is what happened at the cross to where he was, that authority was taken down. Eventually, what you'll see at the second coming is God uh, God will finish this whole thing out and the judgment. He will sentence Satan to a thousand years in the abyss and then eventually throw him into the lake of fire. And you and I will judge Halel Ben-Shakar. Because Paul said, don't you know you will judge angels? We're not going to judge good angel, angels. We're going to judge bad angels. You and I will be there at the great white throne judgment, and we will see Halel ben Shakar be sentenced in front of us to the lake of fire, along with his minions with him. As Messiah, who represents us as a human being, throws him there. And finally, the crushing then will happen. Oh, wow. It's probably more than what you wanted to hear on a Sunday morning. What's some application before we close? I'll point out this. It's just real simple. There's the seed of the woman. There's a the seed of Satan, plural. And that's where we're going to draw our application. You already know that you're in the camp of the seed of the woman. You know that. But here's the deal. There's a problem with our... Enmity that we struggle with towards the world system. Let me make this statement, and I think you'll understand. You have to love what God loves, no doubt about that, right? But you also have to hate what God hates. And most people don't pick up on that. In the scriptures, like in Proverbs 6, it'll say, God hates this, God hates that. And he'll enumerate like different sins, right? And then he'll say in other passages, this is an abomination. That is an abomination. This is an abomination. He'll say Satan is an abomination. He'll say Satan is a profane thing. That means when you see the word abomination, when you see profane, when you see that God hates this, you must also hate it as much. Because if you don't, you are losing the fear of the serpent. You are losing that. And right now, guys a whole host of Christians are snake-handling. They're not afraid of the stuff that's being perpetrated in churches anymore. They're not afraid the serpent has entered into the door of the church, and they don't even see it. I made a statement on my prophecy update. 55% of Christians support gay marriage. What are you talking about, man? And I get it, there's a lot of fake Christians, but are some Christians, maybe they got saved young... Why would they do that? They're used to snake handling. The natural reaction, whoa, that's an abomination, is now, well, it's going to be tolerant towards people. You are handling serpents. What are you doing? Or any other issue that's out there right now. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, some church is now promoting abortion. Yeah, their loss is a ball in high weeds, but they call themselves a church, and they call themselves Christians. But uh, that snake handling, man. Go back to what the Hebrew says. I'm going to put enmity between you and them. A natural hostility towards wickedness, towards evil, should be all about us. It's not only what you stand for, it's what you stand against. And right now, what Satan is trying to do is coming in the back door in your life, in your family's life, and say, hey, man, I'm just a buddy of yours. I'm here to help you. And then all of a sudden, you start snake handling. Be careful, guys. Satan doesn't play fair. He never will. He will come at you in the back door. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.